This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode. This week, we sat down with Pete Waldrip of W Energy Software. So he came by the studio and we chatted about co-founding multiple successful software companies, particularly in the oil and gas space, hiring all the right people himself, and how he's still enjoying the startup life after 20 years of doing this. But really quickly, before we get to the episode, this episode is brought to you by our good buddies over at Well Database. So if this is your first time hearing about them, Well Database is our go-to provider for all things oil and gas data. So if you're messing with this kind of data, chances are you're probably doing some sort of decline curve analysis. And Well Database is making that workflow super simple with their built-in decline curve analysis tool. So rather than find, export, and then import into like an Aries or PhD Win or some other tool, you can do it instantly right there in Well Database. So that means if you're looking through deals, you can probably do this analysis, I don't know, like 10 times faster. If you want to see what the decline over EUR for, say, Conoco in the Bakken versus the Eagleford, boom, you can do that too. And probably one of the coolest features is that you can do their quote-unquote best fit curve. So it'll figure out if it should be exponential, hyperbolic, modified ARPS, and then it'll tell you how good of a fit that actually is. So it's kind of like a BS detection on their own curve fit. So that's pretty cool. So once again, the guys over Well Database are building a ton more functionality into their platform at no additional cost outside of your normal subscription. Well Database plans range from free for well-level data to $1,000 per month per user for their professional package. So go check them out at welldatabase.com and tell them we sent you. What's going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. A little bit somber over the last couple of days. Right, Colin? Yeah. So we had some um, some sad news. Um, founder of Downhole Technology, Duke Van Lu, passed away in an airplane crash at 40 years mm-hmm. old. And if you don't know Duke, um, Duke was the founder and the creator of the Boss Hog Frack Plug. And it's a legendary tool. I think they designed it um, sometime in 2010 era, right at the beginning of the shell boom. And, and you said you ran a bunch of those, didn't you? Yeah, I ran a, a bunch of Boss Hog plugs. And I mean, they took like 30% of the market share just wow. almost in no time. So I made a post on LinkedIn, just regret that we weren't able to get him mm-hmm. on, on the podcast um, because I know he had just so much experience and wisdom and um, he had a lasting impact on everyone that he worked with so you know if you're a a friend of duke consider yourself lucky and you know i think that it's important that we pay respect to oil and gas founders like that so you know on a positive note we have our good friend pete here from w energy how are you doing pete i'm great thanks for having me today guys appreciate it yeah Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming by um been trying to line this up for a while aisha We've been going back with Aisha. I'm like, we're going to get Pete on. We're going to get Pete on. She's like, well, Corona. (laughs) Pete can't travel. Pete can't come down. So you're up in Tulsa, uh, but you you had some meetings down here in Houston. So we were able to to line that up. So I'm excited because I've heard a lot of things about you. Mostly good. Well, we got a lot of. We, <laughs> I'll take mostly. Mostly, we got a lot of friends. I mean, we got a lot of friends at, at W. So you know, Dr. obviously, Doctor Funkenstein works yeah, we got for Jer- you. Jeremy, so. Jeremy Funk, who's got a podcast. He's awesome, yeah, he's got a podcast on Digital Wildcatters now. So yep. you know, we know a lot of good people over at W. So um, it's good to finally meet you. And you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about what W Energy is and what you guys are doing? Sure, sure. I, I think um, 
First and foremost, I'd say this. W Energy is a service company. And what that means is we provide, we provide a service to our clients, right? And I want our folks to remember that all the time. Now, what does that mean? What do we actually do, right? We provide oil and gas accounting software, typically upstream and midstream, um, and some transaction management software for pipelines. So we do a lot of crude, a lot of gas, um, a lot of crude transportation. And then we have about 40% of the midstream business today in terms of uh, gas processing. And we run um, several thousands of wells through our upstream ERP system all the way through to the end. Okay, very cool. So you're you're providing software from upstream to midstream. I mean, you you guys can do it all. One fully integrated platform built from the ground up from scratch in the same technology, which is pretty fun. Okay, so let's dive into this because I didn't know until about five minutes ago that you have an extensive background in this space. You're actually a, uh, a co-founder of Quorum Software, and if anyone's listening and they don't know Quorum, you know, Quorum's one of the bigger software players in yep. oil and gas, so this episode got even better um, for me in the last five minutes. I was like, oh shit, I didn't know this, I didn't know this. <laughs> so, you know, we're gonna learn a lot of things Did here today. Did your entrepreneurial so. journey start with founding Quorum, or was it actually prior to that? I, sort of sort of there and sort of before, and I'll tell you. So I worked at Anderson Consulting coming out of college, which is now Accenture, oh, okay. um, and while I was there, I wrote a program called TIPS, which became the leading um, midstream processing tool um, in the country forever. It had about 80% of the market share went out of quorum. So um, our product W now has replaced it in a number of cases. But yeah, that was a leading product at the time. And that's why I wrote that product, working with uh, the original CEO so of quorum. were you like a software developer by trade or is this something you just kind of learned on your own? You know, by education, I'm a double E, an electrical engineer. But um, I did like software a lot. And Anderson had everybody kind of building software. And so I got sucked into it. And I was pretty... <laughs> pretty naive at the time. I didn't really know what mm-hmm. I was doing. I was kind of learning on the fly, but it was fun. It was fun building software. Did Anderson just kind of, I'm, I'm assuming, know what I know about Accenture now, I'm assuming they operated pretty much the same way. Did you, did you just get tasked with a lot of the stuff in oil and gas and they were like, hey, just build a software for accounting and just yeah. figure it out. I mean, that's, essentially, <laughs> that's essentially how it worked, right? You you end up, I finished my first project and they're like, okay, this guy over here needs you to do some work for him. His name is Paul Weidman and Paul's a great guy. Paul was the original CEO at Quorum and um, I had an opportunity to work for him for a long time. It was really a, a really great learning experience for me. Um, so I worked for him at Anderson. Then when we founded Quorum, the, he and I and three other guys, I got to work for him for several more years. So great guy. Yeah. So what what was the uh, the catalyst or the genesis of Quorum, you know, going from the consulting side to starting a software company? What led you guys to do that? I, I would say we were not exactly a software company at Quorum. We were more of a services company with some software packages or some toolkits that we provided. Um, we didn't really understand software the same way I think of it today in mm-hmm. that respect. Um, so what we did was we got and we it was all custom implementations. Right? Every client had their own implementation of software. And it was all customized. And when we tried to do an upgrade, it was pretty painful for clients. But so we weren't really a true software company in the sense of it today, but it was kind of fun to do it, right? Even in those days, it was pretty interesting. And we learned a lot of stuff along the way. Yeah, I'm sure. And so, you know, kind of let, let's unpack Quorum a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, what was Quorum really offering as a service back then? When when was the time period for this? Was this- Sure, we started Quorum in May of 1998. Okay. Um, and I left in... Um, like September of 2004, something like that. So about six years, six and a half years. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you're talking, you know, early days of, yeah. of software. Did the, I mean, that was like right, right through the dot-com bust. I mean, did, oh, you, yeah. did that, did it affect you guys? Nope. Not at really all? at all because we weren't trying to be a dot-com company. We were profitable from the beginning, always trying to be that. I think the difference between a software company and what we were at Quorum was a software company is focused on building software and there's some services around it and you have partners at Quorum. We were focused on driving services dollars and we happen to have some packages that we used with it. And we didn't, a lot of those were written in different technologies. We didn't care. It didn't matter, right? It was just, hey, if somebody wanted a land package, well, we'd acquired a land package from Chevron. That was great. And so we could sell that. Totally different tech stack. If somebody wanted, 
you know, tips. Well, I could use that. And that was a totally different tech stack. And if somebody wants something else, same kind of problem or it's challenges, I guess. But yeah. But uh, yeah. So you guys were more focused on generating revenue from the service side and you all about more, more use software as a, that's right. as a means to an end. Yeah. Wait, that's most right. of the services just implementations or. Yeah. Mostly implementation. The big thing, the big difference between Quorum and what I would call, what I'd say about us today is at W, we don't charge for upgrades, right? That's a part of what we use technology to do. Every client's on the same code mm-hmm. base. So if client A and client B both want to upgrade at the same time after each year's annual release, they get the same exact version of the code, right? There's no project or any of that stuff. We use technology to upgrade the database, roll it all out, and let them test it. A quorum, and I'm not sure how it is today, but when I was there, um, every pro- every client was different, different code base, right? So you had to figure out what the changes were. So the upgrades were probably 75% of the original cost, I would say, 50 to 75%. So that was a lot of our dollars coming in the door every year was all those projects mm-hmm. to do upgrades. We don't, that's not really how software works, right? But that's how we did it then. Yeah. So you leave Quorum um, around 2004 mm-hmm. era, and then what was the what was the next, um, uh, you founded another company. I founded a, 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 a well, I'll call it a startup, I guess. Yeah, we'll start with just a couple, a couple of us at the time. Uh, Brian Zahn and I founded a company called Capitalized Consulting at that point in time. Brian and I had worked together since the Anderson days. He was at Quorum with us for a long time, and he decided to leave independently of me. But about, um, I don't know, a couple months after me, so I said, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know. I said, well, he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm not sure, but I think about starting a business. So <laughs> kind of, you know, one of those. I've had those conversations yeah, before. <laughs> you're having beer with a buddy and that's what happens. Suddenly you got a company going right now. You got to sell some work. So, but it was great. I learned a ton. One of the things I did learn was that as a consultant, you're viewed as being 20 IQ points smarter than as a software guy. So going, <laughs> going back to software was a little bit tough from that respect, but, but um, no, it was good. And we, um, that business is still one of our main partners today. Uh, Brian and I have partnered for a lot of years together. They do, and they work with and everyone else in the space, but uh, they do a lot of implementation work for us. They're great guys. Awesome. Yeah. And so was that consulting that, that was still based around kind of more of the services and the implementations? Yeah, a lot of implementation, software selection, um, process, business process improvement, things like that. So the first big project we did was helping one of our clients consolidate offices from four to two, revamp software and processes and look at all that stuff as well as the implementation of the, the new version of the software. So yeah. a lot of that all together. Awesome. So did you jump straight into W after that? Yeah. So I did, um, I was at, I was at, uh, capitalized till 2000 and officially, I guess I'll say 2010, but really till 2009. And then, uh, I met the Waterfields, which is where the original W came from. And, uh, they were looking for somebody to help with some, they were doing custom software. They had some energy mm-hmm. clients that were looking for some help with that. At the same time, I had some clients from the previous days who said to me, Pete, are you going to do software again? which for a long time I said no, because software is really tough. <laughs> it's hard, right? Consulting so much easier. But I started building a product on the side at night, and I built the first version of our tips competitor, our uh, W Processing, and uh, and then we sold it to a client and kind of ran from there. So Let's talk about the, uh, the the tips product and yeah. what it actually is, because you said it was a, a midstream processing tool. Gas processing what, accounting, yep. Gas yeah, accounting. so what does that actually mean? You know, what what is that? Yeah, sure. Gas plants are fairly complicated beasts to account for. There's a whole detailed, I think it would think of it as two main steps. One's allocation and the next piece is kind of valuation of the dollars and the contracts. And they're both pretty complicated stuff. So it's not a space that many people understand really well. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I think Paul and I both understood was sort of 
how to how to understand that business and, and build software in it in a way that was was flexible enough to handle all the cases. So I don't think many folks really got that. But gas plant accounting um, from a component level allocation, very complicated, interesting, tiered. And then uh, the contracts can be really complicated as well. They used to be pretty simple. Wellhead purchaser, POP contracts, and now they've gotten into all kinds of fixed recoveries. And It's funny how humans can just complicate contracts and deals, right? Truth? <laughs> <laughs> you bet, you bet. Yeah. So you guys, um, that, that was the genesis for W was uh, pr- uh, creating a product that was essentially a uh, competing product to the tips product. Did you guys see, you know, did you see that, hey, you know, there's all these things that we could have done better yeah. or, you know, I'm sure that you had a ton of takeaway from designing that original product that you said, oh shit, you know, maybe we should have done <laughs> this instead. It's a great question actually. And it's fundamental to what we've done differently. So besides the cultural differences I wanted to instill in my folks, um, there were definitely technology differences. For example, um, what we did when we started at Anderson was we were all generalists, right? So you're a business guy one day, a tech guy the next day. So we started that same kind of culture at Quorum. So everybody went through the tech training. What I realized is that's totally the wrong way to build a business because you want to put developers who like to develop code into those roles and let them run their stuff, right? So that's what we do. For example, my guys live in that area and the folks that come in are you know, trained developers. That's what they know how to do. That's what they want to do, right? Mm-hmm. I don't try to force force people into every role, which is what we did at Quorum, and that was a mistake. And um, so it cost us some cycles, I'll say. Um, but we also found some things in the, in the technology and in the original application that I built when I was sort of figuring it out as I went that we could make easier. And so we did a lot of that stuff as well. So so what's the relationship with, I know you mentioned the, the Waterfield guys. Mm-hmm. So did you come in as, as an investor and then, and, and then come in as CEO and then come to run the thing? Or are you guys partnered together? Did you buy them out? Or So um, they had a company called uh, Waterfield Technology in Tulsa, which is why we're in Tulsa today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they actually invested. I sat down and spoke to them about what I was doing. Was it building on the side? And I knew that you know Pete's software out of Pete's basement was not going to be a very fast-growing business, right? And I want to do something faster. So uh, I met with these guys, great group of guys. And uh, John Marino is the guy that kind of got me introduced to them. He runs Waterfield Technologies today. And um, we talked about kind of the vision of what I wanted to build and how I wanted to build it. And so they actually invested in us, what we we're doing, and gave us, yeah. you know. So we went from having kind of no bankroll to kind of having an almost unlimited bankroll of cash right in the bank. And obviously, you got to pay that back at some point in time in some way, which we did. But, you know, that gave us the, the ability to really build software and grow the company pretty fast. And we've been profitable since the first year. But uh, we have we've always had a bank account to kind of lean on if we need to. That's pretty nice. cool. Yeah. So let's talk about um, actually building the product. And, you know, you just brought up a good point. You guys had resources that allowed you to you know, bring mm-hmm. in developers, actually build build the product. Um, you know, you made a comment earlier that building software is hard. Yeah. <laughs> Consulting is a lot easier. Yep. So let's talk about, you know, you come up with uh, the idea to build W and then how do you how do you go about actually building it um yeah. you know are you are you personally leading the development teams to to build the product from scratch or did you bring in you know a cto how, how did you go about that <laughs> you know you sometimes you're it's better to be lucky than good right in this case i got lucky so first of all at this point in time i'm you know it's 2010 i'm 20 years into my career i'm not exactly the young technologist i was you know 10 yeah. years before that right <laughs> so um i actually one of the folks that, that Waterfield brought to us was the guy who was now our CTO, and he was fantastic. And we were, what we did was we benchmarked a bunch of tools and timing to see how fast things would run, how fast it took to build it. And that's how I picked our, our, our tech stack. And this guy was the guy who was kind of pushing for the tech stack we picked. So 
he's the one who now runs all that pixel our vision but for one of the things he's really good at is just optimizing software so our stuff runs about 150 times faster when we benchmarked it than our our competitors which think about those cycles and times right mm-hmm. so having that guy and i supposed to say better be lucky than good he came along with the waterfield deal <laughs> and having that guy as a part of it has been a tremendous difference maker for us yeah i think a lot of people they like to take credit for yeah. things right so it's good to hear some someone say it's just better to be lucky than good because <laughs> i agree with that 100 <laughs> percent. it's true right i wish i could say i mean honestly my part of my thought is to be a successful company it's 50% luck and 50% working your butt off right and that's yeah. what it is and um, there's a couple of good books on this on the topic one is uh, I'm trying to remember his name um, he wrote tipping point Malcolm Gladwell oh, yeah and uh, the book is tipping points a good one I like that one a lot too but the first one I read of his was outliers and outliers really talks about success and it, and I think it was it's fundamental to me to understand that you do have to look around and say, okay, I got lucky here. And so I can look at the key things that happened with us kind of inflection points along the way, you know, first client, really lucky to have, have that thing happen. Cause first client's tough to get in any business, right? Yeah, no, sure. And then, uh, the CTO that we got and the first salesperson that we got came out of Waterfield, the partnership I had with Brian helped me with the services capitalize, you know, then frankly, our competitors took our off the ball and a couple of key clients and allowed us to get in there when we shouldn't have. And that's kind of how we got there. So you gotta get lucky. Yeah. Those are both classic books for founders. Yeah. If you haven't read them, you definitely need to check them out. So, you know, where you guys are at today, you've moved into upstream, you know, you're doing accounting from upstream all the way to midstream. Obviously you knew the midstream side from earlier endeavors. How did you guys make the transition into upstream accounting software? Well, good question. So the, the reason there's not a lot of vendors there is because the entry cost is high, right? Yeah. And so, you know, you've got to look at it. So what I did was I started thinking from the very beginning, okay, how am I going to get to where I want to go? Because I knew midstream had a limited number of clients and limited number of revenue, right? So mm-hmm. to get the business to grow the level I wanted, I've looked at kind of step two, step three, step four. So upstream was step two in that business. I said, okay, how am I going to get there? So um, I got a little bit lucky again. We won a big DO division order project with uh, Exxon. So we had all 85,000 of their wells in our division order system until just recently when they replaced us with SAP. But that project turned out to be the fundamental. I mean, they've spent millions of dollars helping us build that out. We have this world-class division order system, right? So yeah. uh, built in our same tech stack, but it's all you know stuff that we worked with them on. So that took us, helped us scale from kind of 10 user systems to 200 and 300 users you know, on the system at one point in time. So that was kind of component one. Then we managed to sell our first revenue deal. That was component number two. Um, and that was with Talisman Repsol. And then from there, we kind of added components. And then during the downturn of 15, 16, I decided I was going to use that time frame wisely, which is what I'm trying to do now as well. So what we did was we built out um, we built out our financial application and our jib stuff. So from there, we, by the time we emerged from the downturn, we had most of the components of Upstream built. And then we took those first next couple clients. And um, one of the clients we worked with really extensively was WPX in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've just been a fantastic group to work with. I, I can't say enough about them, but they actually helped us take our upstream ERP from what I call kind of version one, which was cobbled together a little bit to this fully function featured platform. That's fantastic. And, um, that really has enabled us to sell so well. So since we finished that project in uh, March of 2019, we've been winning about 90% of the upstream deals we're in, which is pretty incredible. That's awesome. So you guys are specifically focused on the, the accounting portion of the business. So an upstream would be division orders, jibs, hydrocarbon accounting, fixed assets, financial accounting at the end of the day, exactly revenue accounting, all that. Yeah. We're counting. And then we have land of course as well, which I think it was a, an important component of that. And uh, we really just came out with land 2.0 
this year, which is pretty, pretty good upgrade for us. Pretty so nice. It's pretty interesting because you mentioned that you worked with Exxon extensively to yeah. develop this. And then you had uh, Repsol and, and Talus. I mean, these aren't small companies, right? Yeah. So it's pretty interesting that you went for these, these kind of bigger ENPs instead of like, Hey, we should build something and, you know, test it out on some smaller independents. You kind of went for some of the big dogs right out of the gate. It sounds like, you know, we did. And I'll say, I'll say again, it's better be lucky and good. Right. But two things. Um, one is that's why I went after um, a brand like Waterfield to partner with us because when I sat with Exxon, they said, listen, if you're Pete's software company, we're not going to do this deal with you. And I said, well, I've got a billion dollars behind me and I'm not going to fail and they're not going to let me fail. So you're fine. And that, <laughs> right. That was a good conversation yeah, to have with a client. Yeah. You so, have some credit capacity. That's to right. You, right. No problem. So yeah. I didn't have I didn't have debt worries or, you know, yeah. I didn't have I didn't have cash flow worries the whole time. Right. So yeah. was, was Waterfield just wildly successful or were the founders of Waterfield wildly successful? Um. To have a billion dollars behind. Oh it. yeah. Well, the the original it's a privately held family company, and the, oh, okay. Yeah, the grandfather was wildly successful, and the grandsons who I worked with were great guys who, uh, who um, also were quite successful. Okay. So, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So yes. So that's um, you know that's one thing I was thinking about. You know, it's hard for startups, and you know I just had someone from Exxon here a few days ago, and we were talking and you know, talking about some of the issues of adopting new technology. And I mean that that's it's even an issue for us at Digital Wildcatters if we're building out you know a tech stack on our website. You can ask Jake. I always bring this up. He's like, oh hey, we should use this provider. And yeah. I'm like, what what round of funding are they in? I want to yeah. know that they have some. They're not going to disappear overnight if we're building out an entire you know piece of technology on top of them. So it's an important thing and. Um, you know, if you're Exxon and you're looking at this startup and, you know, maybe they have a $5 million round behind them yeah. that doesn't, you know, are they going to be around in 18 months? That's you don't right. know. So that's an issue sometimes. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, uh, you know, one of the things about us, like I said, we've been profitable every year. Um, some years slimmer than others, right? My, my goal in the first 10 years was really invest as much back in the software as I could. And then this last year, now we're, we're still investing pretty heavily, but we're generating pretty significant profit as well. So it's kind of a nice combination. Um, and then what we'll see over time, I've got, I've got phase three working right now and phase, phase two, well, phase three of the business really is, um, moving along. And when that investment's done, we'll kind of see, but I'm building out a couple more pieces of software that I want to add to the portfolio to round us out. Yeah. Um, and that'll be fun for us when we're done with that. But right now we're investing and we're turning off some pretty good cash. That's so fun. Yeah. What are you guys seeing right now in the industry? I mean, obviously, industry in turmoil. Yeah, Counting's probably more. My next question. Counting's probably yeah. more important now than <laughs> ever, right? And I mean, especially I'm not as familiar with midstream or accounting, but I'm pretty familiar with accounting and upstream. And I mean, it's always a clusterfuck. And um, <laughs> you know, is. it's just like I asked. Yeah. Um, this is a couple of months back on Twitter. I'd, I'd I'd ran a poll and it got you know 300 and something people voting on it, and the question was. If you're to go to any ENP and ask them, hey, is this specific individual well profitable on a marginal cost basis? Can they give you an answer right then? That's and 90% right. of the voters said no. And it's just because accounting is just, I mean, it's, it's, complicated. It, it's complicated, right? And it's tough. And so, um, you know, obviously right now EMPs are, I mean, they're having to be on top of their, their game right now. So are you guys seeing a higher demand for products and services that you offer or what are, what are y'all seeing? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll say this. Um, I did not expect what's happened this year to happen, not just the code, right? But, but the outcome since then, if you'd asked me, what was going to happen with sales? I always said sales going to go in the toilet, right? We're going to struggle because we're just this new company that's really built upstream out. You know, we're kind of, we're known in midstream, but we're not really known in upstream. Mm -hmm. And instead, the opposite has happened. 
clients have embraced new technology because they want GNA costs. They want better access and visibility into data. So what we're seeing is clients are coming to us saying, look, I got my GNA costs down. I need access to data. And I think that's a lot of the reason that we're winning so many deals. We don't try to be less expensive up front or if we're not. In fact, we're typically your more expensive solution. But if you look at a total cost of ownership over five years, we're significantly less. And our clients can stay current on the newest version of software because they don't have those big projects, right? So they have to yeah. budget for that every year. So instead, they're getting new technology every year in those upgrades. That's a tremendous value to them. So, um, yeah, we're, we're actually seeing our business will have a record year this year. It's crazy. We had our best quarter, first quarter. We're having another great quarter, second quarter. That's we'll awesome. Numbers you know, and then, we've yeah. heard that from several startups is that, hey, these past few months have been our best m- months in terms of growth and revenue. Yeah. And, I mean, the only the common denominator I can figure is that a lot of VMPs are, are looking towards um, technologies that can make them more efficient. So, yep. I mean, it, it makes sense in theory. Yeah, I think it's, it's when the rubber hits the road, especially times like this your value proposition becomes either extremely obvious or it doesn't. That's yeah. right. <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. yeah you better sure. have a good story to tell when you get there. Yeah. So, so how do you guys, um, how does your pricing model work? Because you made a comment, you know, said, yeah, we're actually probably not the cheapest solution out mm-hmm. there. Are you guys charging? I mean, is this a SaaS based software where you're charging, you know, per seat? Are you charging licensing? How do, how do you guys typically? It's all SaaS based software. It's all per seat. Um, although we do have, I'll, well, I'll say this as someone who, is uh, our company's younger, right? 10 years in, uh, we're pretty well established, but nonetheless, we'll sell anything anyway that's legal, essentially. So, <laughs> so in other words, if a client comes to us and says, hey, can you structure this deal for me this way? We don't have enough red tape in my organization. We can't figure out a way to make that work. But yeah. generally speaking, we'll sell licensed seats on a SaaS basis monthly, yeah. Got you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's funny you should say, we're, we're early in this and you've been around 10 years. Yeah. You know, most companies like, you know, we'll talk to them. They've been up and running, you know, for 12 months or so. So, um, you know, when did you guys start getting into the upstream business? I don't know if you already said that or not, but are yeah. you guys still fairly, fairly new to, to upstream? Well, you know, originally our first, very first clients were upstream um, range resources, EOG resources. Oh, okay. Two of the first three clients we had. So yeah. we ended up doing upstream work kind of accidentally. Um, and one of the things I think that we've understood that I don't know if everyone gets it, but upstream and midstream, there's a lot of similarities. And we used our technology stack to solve both of the problems with the same software. Um, and so that was good for us. And there's extensions, of course, and upstream has some complexities. Midstream doesn't and vice versa. But nonetheless, um, they're pretty simple. So what was nice was, Get, for me to get a chance to see that at range in EOG and understand what they're doing, we use the same software at EOG for their upstream production that we use for their plan accounting. Exact same functions, right? Um, and then, so that's nice. And it's a good opportunity to really understand how software works differently than people might think in that space. Yeah. So that just kind of happened by accident that you're dealing with two, you know, gas players, yeah. EMPs, and you yeah. just kind of walked into that. Huh? I was helping range with some consulting and they were looking for some software and they couldn't find exactly what they wanted. And I showed them what I'd been prototyping at night, you know, so here's, <laughs> here's what I've been building at night for fun. And, and I think one of the things is the technology in our space is so old today that it's kind of crazy. The major players have just 20 and 30 year old technology, right? So we show up with, I wanted to show them web-based technology, something that looks new, looks clean and is faster, much faster to use and easier to upgrade. And uh, clients love that. As soon as they see it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a difference, right? Huge yeah. difference maker. I think we talked about this on our last episode, but like in, even in the 2016, mm. 17 era, you know, you go some to some of the 
technology conventions and oil and gas conferences and some of the software companies would be up there with their softwares and it's yeah. like this looks like it was developed in early 2000s and it so, was right yeah <laughs> it doesn't just yeah. look like it it yeah. was developed in the early 2000s well and so a lot of those guys are trying to put lipstick on a pig right i mean yeah. they're trying to put a web-based front end blah 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 but that's not the same as as truly using modern technology right modern stacks i mean i can remember when when i made the first tips database tables i was using db4 so i had eight characters for a table name which is ridiculous today right things like that i mean just simple but we didn't even think about things like we have graphical tools now that we use in our application things like that weren't even possible in those days so when i designed the data model for tips originally i didn't design to support anything like that when we came back and we rebuilt it as w energy i said okay let's make this work graphically and make the data model support that so it's a whole different way of thinking right when you get a chance to redo something like that yeah so and if, i'm not going to call any companies out but you know like for instance one of the ones that you co-founded you know you have companies like that that <laughs> i'm not gonna call put, them out but quorum <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean some of the some of the the incumbents um whether it's in oil and gas or other other sectors it, it's like putting lipstick on a pig right yep. i mean you can't change the fundamental tech stack that something's built on i mean i'm not a developer but you know you just look at recent technologies you know using react and yeah. um you know kubernetes yeah, yep, and yep. everything it doesn't only look good it operates fast and yeah. you know i think people often forget if you're not a developer but you know we use like facebook and instagram and all these technologies daily and i don't think people appreciate you know how fast they work and just the amount of data yeah. that that's being aggregated and, and uh, transmitted and yeah. You know, we need those types of solutions in oil and gas, right? And you can't build that unless you're building it from scratch with up-to-date new age technology. That's exactly right. You know, one of the things we did was, so if you looked at our first batch engine, it was faster than our competitors, but not nearly where we're at today. So my CTO came to me and said, hey, I think I figured out how to make this work in a different way. And so we ran some tests and they were kind of amazing. So at a user conference, this is probably 2003. 13 or 14 he demoed at a user conference and he pushed a button and it finished and he went ta-da and everybody just kind of looked at him and I said and I said well tell us what you just processed right so I did a thousand meter allocation in 10 seconds and everybody was just stunned by it because that was something that might take an hour hour and a half in the old systems right so mm -hmm. those kinds of performance times are just amazing but technology allows you to do that so for the the nerds out there what is y'all's tech stack yeah we are uh, Ruby on Rails um, on a SQL okay. server database yeah. Okay. And there's some other React and some other tools in there as well. So but cool. Is there a reason you guys went with the SQL database over, say, something like a, like a NoSQL, maybe like a Mongo? We, we had a lot of conversations about all that. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, we've had conversations. I've sat in more tech discussions than I ever thought I would, right? Yeah. Um, as you know, a uh, software company. But yeah, we, um, we finally decided that that was going to be the ubiquitous database that our clients were used to seeing that they could get their data out of. So the important part, was for, true. You know, yeah. important part is letting them report effectively. So whether it's a replicated database or, or data warehouse or even off the live production database, depending on the size and scope of the application for that particular client, you've got to let them have access to that data and they have to get to it meaningfully and easily. So mm. tables can't, you know, it can't be like SAP where table names are whatever, you know, one, two, seven or something, right? It's got to have real table names, real column names and real data. That's easily easy to yeah, that you can call it up there. easy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, let's in the last minutes of this podcast, um, you know, we got about 10 minutes or so. Let's talk about some of the lessons you've learned. You know, it's not often that we get a serial <laughs> founder entrepreneur. I mean, most people, it's funny. I think, uh, I can't remember who it was on our podcast, but he was another serial founder and it's like, man, you must just be a masochist. You must love the pain of just, you know, founding multiple companies. 
I'm sure you have a ton of lessons that you've learned, both positive and negative. You know, are there any things that stick out to you over your journey as a founder and entrepreneur that really stick out to you that, you know, if someone was listening, that's an aspiring founder, maybe, uh, or maybe they're currently a founder. Is there anything that sticks out to you as good advice for those guys? Yeah, you bet. Great questions for sure. So I think the number one thing I learned was choose your partners carefully. Make sure you actually have an aligned vision. And don't, don't assume you have an aligned vision. Make sure it's exactly the same. Because in my first experience, we did not have an aligned vision. That's why I ended up leaving. I had those guys buy me out six years later because I had a vision for client service and what we we're going to do there. And that was not at all what anyone else cared about in that company, right? Mm-hmm. At the leadership level. And lots of great people, lots of great people out of college. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think the leadership and the founders had the same vision for that. That wasn't important to them yeah. like it was to me. So I would say the number one most important thing you can do is find, if you're going to found a business and you're going to found some partners, make sure those partners share your vision and philosophy for what mm-hmm. you're doing. That's, that's been the key. I think some of the other things we've done, you know, we got lucky in some ways, right? I always say better lucky than good. You know, make sure that you figure out a hiring process that's going to work for you, whether it's college or experience hires or both. Um, but make sure you're doing that as effectively as possible. Yeah. And as a small, as a startup company, you have to take every hire as seriously as possible. One of the mistakes, you know, you can easily make as you start to get bigger and you're growing and running is you start letting people below you make the hiring decisions. And that's a mistake. I, I now make sure myself or one of the other C-level folks in my company talks to every employee that comes in the door, period. Um, and that's us well over 100 employees, right? So. Um, you got to make sure you're doing that effectively mm-hmm. if you want to if you want to grow correctly. Because let's dive into that a little bit. Sure. Because I mean, even at let's let's take it at early stage startup level, your first few hires are critical. We're about right? to hire some people, so this is yeah, some, yeah, this is great, great advice. Hey, to us. Yeah, Pete, <laughs> so, school, yeah. school us up sure, right yeah. here. You know, yeah. it's like you're schooling us up. So, and it's kind of a nerve wracking yeah. endeavor because you're like, man, you know, we're gonna bring on this person and it can make or break, you know, we, yep. you have funding, but it's limited budget. And when you, you actually look at the pro forma, G and A is eating up, you know, the, the majority of the cash. And if this person doesn't pan out, you know, things could, could go south. So let's talk about what you look for, you know, your process for hiring people, you know, for us, culture is a really big thing. Um, we yep. want to make sure you know, I've always said that if I had two people in the same job function and one was a 10 on technical ability, but was a six on a cultural fit. And then I had another person that was a 10 on a cultural fit, but you know, maybe a seven on the technical ability, I would take the cultural fit. You know, that's my personal experience or, or my kind of ethos. Let's hear about what you really look for when you're building teams and your, your process of finding the best people. That's a great point. And I think cultural fit is exactly right. I 100% agree with you. So if you look at Southwest Airlines and you, I mean, generally speaking, those people give off the same vibe, right? They care about you, your experience, are trying to make your day happy. I mean, they constantly are singing on planes and doing crazy stuff like that, right? But there's a culture there that's very important to them. If you look at great hotels, take Marriott's, right? Take Rich Carlton's, um, Four Seasons. Very, very cultural in how they hire people. Mm-hmm. So what I said to our folks early on was, we're going to be, we're going to be the Four Seasons of software. And so what that means is, we have to have people who understand that when they come in the door. So I inherited a few folks early on, right, from the Waterfield folks, and I called one of my guys one night about six o'clock because we had a support issue, and in those days we were, you know, I was doing support and books on the weekend, everything. And I said, Hey, I need some help with this. He said, I'm OTC. And I'm like, what's OTC? (laughs) He said, it's off the clock. And I said, you're also out of work. 
So go find another job. So you have, you have to be very careful. Culture is absolutely right. And what I tell my people is, listen, if you don't, if you're not a service oriented people, if you don't get joy in providing a great service to someone, go someplace else. Because for us, that's the most important thing. Frankly, every business is a service oriented business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but people have to understand that. I, I, <laughs> when I was in high school, I worked at McDonald's and um, a tough job, but I was very service oriented. And I think that I grew a lot of those skills from jobs like that really helped me um, and have helped with W Energy. Yeah, it's interesting. I got hired at Inventure Global Technology in 2014, and I'm interviewing for this job as a project manager, managing expandable casing installations, you know, million dollar jobs across the Western Hemisphere. And I had an interview with six people, and there was this uh, little old lady, nicest lady (laughs) in the engineering department, and she looks at my resume, and she said, you know what experience I'm most interested in? She's like, when you were 18, you were a 100% commission sales base for Sears selling appliances, and I was like, why the hell are you, like, I've got all why this oil field yeah. experience. Why are you, why are you focusing on that? And she said, because we're a, a service-based business and understanding how to handle customers and talk to them and actually provide value to them yep. is such a big skill set that a lot of field hands, you know, don't come, come along with. So I, I like your point of every business is a service-based business to some, yep. to some extent. Right. So, yep. and I like your example of Southwest airlines because I'm a frequent flyer on United just because that's what our company uses. Used. And anytime I couldn't get a flight on United, I would go over to Southwest Airlines and just the experience was so much more pleasant. Like these flight yeah. attendants didn't hate their lives and <laughs> treat me like shit. And I was like, you that, that, that culture bleeds through yeah. the employees. Yeah. Right. And that has to come through the hiring process. I mean, that comes from top down. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just something that they push and it shows in their, their work and their service. So for, Absolutely right. So for us, a big, a big attribute, one of the things that we like is we've been scrappy. You know, it's been us plus um, a couple other people who've really built this over the last two years and now we're about to scale it up. One of the things that we really like is people who are resourceful, mm-hmm. right? I want you to come in and tell us how to do your job that we're hiring you for because that's why we're hiring you because yeah. we can't do it, yeah, right. right? As opposed to us coming in and saying, you need to do it this way, this way, this way, and micromanage. You should be able to teach us things. Yeah, yeah, you should be able to teach, come in and just run whatever it is that we're hiring you for. And so resourcefulness and then just really just owning that is is really, really important to us. Are there any other attributes you know, in addition to obviously being a cultural fit and wanting, you know, and being passionate about customer service, anything else that you're looking for? I'll say this. I I think that the most important thing is you can find cultural fit folks who are smart because smart people can do anything for you, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things I learned at Anderson. We were a bunch of really bright, highly motivated, ignorant kids, right? <laughs> out, we didn't know anything. We knew we could figure stuff out. We had a saying at Anderson I liked, which was, if you had a problem, nobody could solve it, give it to four new hires. Don't tell them nobody can solve it. One of them at least will figure it out. So I think what we try to do is find the smartest people we can. And I don't care if I'm sitting in a room with my folks and I'm the dumbest person in the room, I'm great with that. It's a good thing for me, right? Yeah. Because I feel like if I've got folks around me who are smart, I'll figure out where they should go. I don't even care up front necessarily. Sometimes I'll hire somebody I'm not sure where they're gonna fit. Yeah, absolutely. I don't care. If they're super smart and they fit our culture, we'll take them, we'll figure yeah. it out later. Yeah, I agree I like with that, that 100%. Yeah. You know, on some previous ventures, when we hired our team, we had some people that didn't necessarily fit the profile of the position that we were looking for, Yep. brought them on, and they're all-stars because they were smart, hardworking, resourceful, and you know they work their way into positions. And I, I agree with you 100%. If you have smart people, you can figure out shit like that. I think that's just kind of like an yep. underlying thing. I, I agree. Our director of DevOps, classic example. I did not know where he was going to fit for us, but I knew this was a guy who was so smart. I wanted him on the team somewhere. And uh, I mean, he's the one that took us to AWS. He figured out all the certifications, got all that for our team, saved us 
hundreds of thousands of dollars in the process because he was motivated and smart. I didn't know where he was going to fit, but this guy is great and I'm thrilled to have him on our team. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I wish Jeremy Funk was here with us today because <laughs> I'd be like, man, you hire smart people and you got Jeremy over here. What are you doing? Pete? This <laughs> I play, love Jeremy. Jeremy's man. Jer- Jeremy's an all-star man. He I, is I love an that all-star. guy. He, he's crazy. Yeah. If you guys are listening and uh, you want to reach out to W energy, there's probably a good chance that you'll interface with uh, Jeremy Funk and the guy's just, he's uh, a crazy good, good person. So yeah. Pete, you know, where do you guys, where do you guys go moving forward? You know, what's your vision for W? You know, obviously you guys are seeing a lot of growth here in the last few months with mm-hmm. everything that's happening in oil and gas. Um, you know, whether it's from a growth perspective or, you know, exit, you know, what, what's your grand vision of mm-hmm. W Energy? What do you, what do you have planned? Yeah, I'm not trying to get out of the business anytime soon. I'm having too much fun. I have three main competitors in the space and I want to make them all I won't say put them out of business, but I will say make them. More. Let's just call it. So let's call it like this. So we got Quorum, probably probably yeah, P two, Quorum P two, and Inertia, kind of the three okay. upstream yeah, competitors, yeah. right? And um, and I just want to make it where they're not really viable businesses. That's my long term goal. Yeah. So when that's done, then I'll go on to the next set, and then I've got another set of stuff working on after that. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're already. I've got I've got the out. next two stages, and I want to do the same thing with two other sets of people. That's so, awesome. Or competitors. So you're not looking to to come in. I mean, so the 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 common. I don't know about Inertia, but I can speak for the other two. I mean, private equities come in. Yep. Back them they're doing roll-ups you're not looking to go that route you want to you want to just you're having too much fun right? yeah why so would i want to do that right i think yeah. for me i love i'm young enough i love what i'm doing i'm having fun i love winning winning is the most important thing so you know i make a good living i'm having a great time why do i want to stop right yeah so when i'm done with that i've got the next set of visions but i really want to make those guys where their their value is less than their pe firms have invested in them and then i'll love feel it. good about where we're at yeah yeah i think that's an, another important talking point is doing doing something until you're not having fun anymore yeah until and until the love's not there right yeah. and everyone always focuses on the exit you know what's what's the exit yeah. opportunity what's the strategy you know what's the the past to the build exit? something so much fun that you, you it's like you don't want to exit yeah. <laughs> i love going to work every day i tell my employees monday's my favorite day of the week because get five days to beat my competitors yep sunday is my least favorite day of the week because i'm ready to go again saturday's my day off sunday i'm ready to go again and i'm like <laughs> fired up and i gotta wait for a way to come back to work on monday i send out a bunch of emails but i kind of try to leave very long so monday's my favorite day i'm ready to go yeah i love it yeah absolutely that's it i love sundays because sunday Sundays are my planning days. And then, <laughs> okay, good plan. Yeah, good point, yeah, yeah. You know, like that's like my strategizing day. And yep. then Monday you get to start executing. So yeah. that's how I look at it. But let, let's just kind of speak to some of the early stage founders that are out there right now in oil and gas. You know, it's a, a turbulent, mm-hmm. um, you know, arena right now, just with uh, everything that's going on in the upstream sector. You know, say that some of these guys, some of them are bootstrapped, some of them are funded. You know, do you have any advice to them in oil and gas? You've been in the oil and gas industry for quite some time now. You've seen, I don't know how many downturns. I mm-hmm. mean, in the last 10 years, we've had three. So, you know, I'm sure you've seen, you know, five uh, or maybe more. You know, are there any pieces of advice that you have for software founders moving forward over the next year to two years? Um, just any general advice for those types of guys? Absolutely. And I'll say this, this applies no matter where you are in your career. And this is a big mistake a lot of companies make. Um, and one of the things that I, I'm doing, I try to keep myself learning every year, right? So yeah. I'm in this professional advanced education program at Harvard right now, which you go through classes, right? So the last one I had was on finance for senior executives. And it was absolutely great because it talked about basically companies that have been in business for 50 years, 100 years, whatever, all kinds of examples we went through. 
that went out of business because they got over levered. And what I would say is never get so over levered that you can't survive. What I try to do is keep our debt so low that I'm looking out and saying, what happens if the price all goes $20 a barrel? Can I survive that? Right? So we're cautious in that regard, even though we grow aggressively, we don't get over levered. And I think that's the most important thing for a, a new business. You can't run out of cash. You can't get over levered because when you're over levered, you can't move, you can't position, you're just stuck. I think a couple of our competitors are in that place today. So it makes it fun on yeah. that, on that note, kind of talking to the, the reason why most companies become over levered is to in the pursuit of growth. Mm-hmm. And especially when you take funding, you've got investors breathing down your neck. We need returns, returns, returns next, you know, three, four, five, six years, however yeah. long they lever up, scale up, and then also, like, well, you, look, you can't blame some companies either. I mean, like, you look at WeWork. I mean, WeWork didn't yeah. have a viable business model, right? But CEO Adam, I mean, cashed out. He levered up, levered up, levered up, and then cashed out and left that pile of shit for <laughs> someone else to do exactly it. Exactly you know? right. Yeah. So um, you look at it, and it's like some people have been successful doing that, although that's not the path I would ever want to take. Yeah. But um, I mean, you take you take on debt and leverage, it, it, it complicates things, right? Whereas if you're on a cash basis, you can weather a lot of storms, right? right? So how do you guys, you know, how do you balance that in any of your ventures that you've mm-hmm. been a part of, of knowing, yeah, we can, we can leverage some, some debt credit lines to grow, but we need to manage this to where we don't get in trouble. It's a function of percentage of, of your, basically your EBITDA, right? That's mm-hmm. essentially what it is. So for us, um, for example, our debt right now runs 2.6% of last year's EBITDA, I think. So no negligible. Yeah. Um, but we have competitors who are running, you know, 150% of last year's EBITDA. So think about what you're going to do with that mess, right? Mm. How do you grow with that? So we've done, we, we're as acquisition hungry as anybody else is right now in the market. We've looked at three or four in the last year. We did one last year. We looked at three or four since then. We have not been able to get deals closed because I'm not going to overpay. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, look at what happened with Oxy, right? They overpaid for Andarco. Now they're in a world of hurt, right? Yeah. Same thing years ago, there was a company called UP Fuels, UP Energy, and they did the same thing. They bought Pennzoil for way too much money. So what we will not do is overpay for an acquisition. It's just not yeah. worth it to me. I'm very cautious about that. And yeah, I, I mean, if you want cautionary tales of debt, yeah. I mean, you look at almost any EMP right yep. now, right? That's right. Lots of those guys struggling too. So I think, I think managing your debt very quickly, just don't get so excited for growth that you, you take your eye off the ball on the fundamentals of the business. Yeah, and I think that's much easier said than done, right? I mean, yep. one thing that we've been, I want to say lucky, but we've just been disciplined and not taking any debt at digital wildcatters. And Smart it's hard man. sometimes because yeah. we have a business that we could scale a lot faster if we had more resources. Mm-hmm. But at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the day, we can weather any storm there is as long as we stay disciplined. So, you know, it's definitely a, a thing. And, you know, like I bring up the WeWork, you know, mm-hmm. there's multiple examples of that. But then you look at Oxy. I mean, Oxy has a good chance of going down to zero, right? Yeah. And Chesapeake just they did it as of yesterday. Chesapeake, yeah, Chesapeake. Example. If Chesapeake yeah. goes down, anybody can go down. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm glad I didn't put the hidden wine room in. I was thinking about putting in after all the reading that. <laughs> yeah. They had some hidden wine room behind a closet or something. I'm like, oh my gosh, what a waste of money, right? Yeah. We, we don't waste money like that in our business. There's no opportunity for <laughs> yeah, that. So. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Pete, the, this whole conversation, man, was very valuable. I appreciate you coming on the show. You know, we're excited about uh, W Energy and everything that you guys are doing, but, you know, just some of the lessons that, uh, you know, we're able to learn from you as a, a multiple founder in, in this space is, you know, thank you for, for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me today, guys. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Appreciate yeah. it. So if you guys want to reach out to W Energy, Pete, what, what's y'all's website? Uh, wenergysoftware.com. Okay, cool. Or if you're interested, you can reach out. Uh, I'm sure you can find Jeremy Funk. Um, if you don't know, Jeremy's <laughs> got a podcast on Digital Wildcatters yep. now, Tripping Over the Barrel. Go check you it out. You can reach out to him, bug him. Great guy to talk to. And yeah, you know, talk to these guys. They're, they're great guys with a great product. So cool, guys. We will catch y'all on the next episode. Come, 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 come.